Hi and welcome to Contrapest. My name is Kat Boyd and I'm joined uh, by my wonderful co-host David Jameson. Hello. Um, how's your week been? Uh, it's been alright. Uh, we were talking uh, just before we started here about the miseries of this point in winter. Uh, it's been very rainy and stormy. So depressed. Yeah. Like, honestly. So bummed out by it. I just want to stay indoors and eat all the time. Yeah. Which yeah. is good for nobody. Uh-huh. Least of all my self-esteem. Yeah. Um, you think you've got sad. Yes. Do you know, every time I, I... This is that seasonal affective disorder, but every time I say that, I think about Alan Partridge going... Sad. sad. Yeah. <laughs> that's sad. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, so that's what I've got. I've got sad. Sometimes to cheer myself up, I do an impersonation of Sonia. From Alan Partridge. <laughs> Ellen, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've been spending the uh, some of the windy, rainy, cold nights watching films. Mm, it's awards yeah. season. Yeah, it's awards season. Which I always avoid by the plague. By the plague? <laughs> <laughs> I avoid it by the plague. By way uh, of the plague. I... Uh, yeah, I always avoid it because I find it fucking hellish. Really? Yes. Oh, me, I love it. I love it. I'm sorry, but like, I'm not really interested in the like sketches of like the Oscars and stuff. Love watching the red carpet because mm-hmm. I'm a basic bitch. Mm-hmm. I love watching the red carpet, seeing what everyone's, you know, wearing, see what the drama is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I like to watch the actual announcement of like yeah. the awards being. I'm just in a general Presbyterian rage about all of it. Um, so The decadence of it. The decadence and then, I mean, the stuff that most people don't like about it. I mean, I'm sorry to retread old ground, but yeah, the bullshit politics of it. and the, Yeah, the... I, I get what you mean, because this year, um, I think Natalie Portman turned up at the Oscars wearing a cape with the names of women. Yeah. Who didn't get nominated for Oscars yeah. stitched onto it. And as someone who hates women, you know, I hate <laughs> to see that. Listen, do you know people are probably starting to believe that? So yes, I, you know, I am in danger <laughs> of, of uh, uh, being accused or rather being discovered as, as a misogynist. A, yeah. a, um, or an incel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie Portman's cape with the women stitched onto it, I thought was pretty naff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even like a lot of the like sort of liberal Hollywood types thought it was pretty naff. Well, I'll tell you what I saw, um, which sums up the period to me, which is that um, I saw one, uh, there were a few influential accounts saying, I can't even remember what award it was. Again, well informed. Um, And basically someone who was a Native American man won an award that could have gone to a white woman. A number of accounts on Twitter were sort of like, oh, typical. Yet another award for a man where there was, you know, so many strong women contenders. And then, all, all you know, there was a whole, you know, uh, alternative pile on with people like that. Typical white feminism. Shut your fucking white mouth and all this kind of stuff, right? <laughs> and it just made me, it reminded me that the general rule in the current period is like see if you are me right like a gammon white cis whatever you want to call it hetero wasp guy right we are just fading into the background like that homer simpson like that homer simpson gif when he's going into the hedge right and watching all the other factions Mm. kill each other so what i think that is the world can really be divided up into two types of people you have the people like you mm. who are essentially social liberals masquerading as gammon. Excuse me? Or people who are gammon at heart masquerading as the outraged on Twitter. Mm. Because actually, like underneath it all, you're not a gammon, right? Mm. So you're like... You saying I'm cosplaying as a gammon. Yeah, I think... You know what I mean, David, right? Because yeah, yeah, you're not yeah. actually, like... You don't hold any of the core values of Gammon. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You've been involved in, like, anti-imperialist organisations, anti-racist politics. You're making me you know sound I mean? really lame. 
see, but this is this is what I mean. But you, you're like you're a liberal masquerading as a gammon. A liberal. <laughs> this is horrendous. Bro, okay, I think pretending to be a liberal is unfair, but you are a socialist, mm-hmm. right? But you are cosplaying out the gammon identity because you're so like appalled by the liberal outrage culture that happens online. But I think a lot of those people who are the leaders of the call-out culture, deep in their hearts, they're the fucking gammon. Do you know what I mean? They're the gammon. They're the ones that are actually, like, deeply racist. And, um, do you know what I mean? Think that women need a bit of a slap when they talk too much. Do you know what I mean? Well, Well, I've never trusted a man who describes himself as a male ally, so... Yes, yeah. but at the same time, I never trust a man who describes women as females. Mm-hmm. As soon as I, you know, the, you know those <laughs> yeah. guys yeah. that are like, "Oh, we should get more female speakers." I'm like, "What are you doing? Lifting up their tails at the back?" <laughs> that's a that's a zoological term. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so our so award season, our award season, which is going to be completely clean of modern uh, ideology, yeah, clean gammon, um, and. There are only uninformed. two uninformed. Yeah, uninformed. No, well, the the big controversy this year was um, Greta Gerwin's Little Women didn't get a nomination, mm-hmm. um, which I haven't seen. Have you seen it? No. You're not going to see something called Little Women. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I did I did rule that out that fortune that film. Well, I'm very attached to the '90s version of Little Women. Right. Okay. I love it. Love it very much. Um, so I've not seen it because I'm not really sure that I can take someone reworking like that film that has like strong childhood memories but I see Uncut Gems didn't get nothing yeah and you were surprised by that I loved Uncut Gems I thought it was excellent I really enjoyed it Um, I thought my heart was going to give out yeah it's a very tense film if people haven't seen it yet Big recommends, big thumbs up from Connor Cast. And I hate Adam Sandler, by the way. Do you? Yeah. Um, I never found him funny in, in really anything. Uh, and didn't really think he had any other strings to his bow, but he clearly does. Well, he there was another... Oh, God, what was the name? <laughs> so uninformed. There was another film that he did that was like a Punch straight roll. Punch Drunk Love, mm. that's the one. Which I haven't seen. But I do like some... Like I really like Waterboy. The Waterboy, oh, yeah. you know, like yeah. I think that's a cute film. It's the also got Faruza Balk in it, who's probably, one of the most beautiful women ever. You probably liked it because you saw it when you were about twelve. If you watched I, it again, yeah, I mean, Waterboy's either funny when you're twelve or when you're twenty. And hi, <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I think I enjoyed Little Nicky when it came out, and then watched it years later and thought this is the most appalling trash. It was insulting. The thing about Waterboy is that it's got Kathy Bates in it, if you remember. I don't really it's, remember it's, that one. Kathy Bates plays Adam Sandler's mother, like right. overbearing mother figure. Uh-huh. And she's great in those type of roles. Like, I love her. She's such a great actress. Um, but Uncut Gems is Adam Sandler in a straight role. Is made by the Safdie brothers, um, who also made uh, Good Times. Mm. Um, it's another. It. It's a really good film. It's on Netflix. Um, and Adam Sandler's character is a jeweler, who's hmm. a New York Jewish business owner in the jewelry district, and it's all about his his grift, I guess, like hmm. his life, his gambling, hmm. um, one particular bet. Well, it's like a series of bets that all just merge into one giant thing, isn't it? Yeah. I love... Right, so so I think it's basically an, an analysis of sort of addictive behaviour. Um, one thing that um, Mark Carmel pointed out in his review uh, was that it was missold by, you know, the, the people who made it. So that the blurb that came along with the film that was issued to reviewers said, a gambler is essentially an optimist. They're always optimistic about what's around, and that's that's what drives them, right? And what Mark Cameron said, it's not. It's addiction, and it's obviously, you know, driving him to self destruction, right? He's very clearly on that path from the very outset. Um, so he's someone who endlessly takes new risks 
to try and improve his position because he gets high on it. Um, but I love the way the film started, which was... Um, oh, by the way, I should say before we go any further, obviously we're going to completely spoil these films to pieces. Mm. Stop listening now if you haven't seen them. Um, a miner in Africa like blows his foot off. That's how the film starts. And there's a really shocking, bloody, unpleasant scene. And then it transitions from there to Adam Sandler's character having an operation done on him and emerging from that operation. Um, so you're instantly thrown into the reality that it's... You instantly get the sense that it's not just that Adam Sandler's character is dysfunctional in his search for this high. He's part of a much wider world of things that are destructive. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You're instantly putting that frame straight straight away. The world he inhabits, the corner of his city where people trade in jewels, is corrupt, um, extremely kind of superficial, no one cares about anyone else, it's ultra-competitive. So you're already getting a kind of wider view of what creates that sort of character. But yeah, he takes an escalating series of gambles. There's no point in the film in which you think this is going to work out well. You, you, you get no indication of that. And yet, even though you completely hate this character and hate what he's doing and squirm at the decisions he's making, you're still rooting for him all the way. Mm. And so he's very, it's a very human character, mm. although amplified in certain ways. I mean, I really identify with the ever-increasing stakes like you when like this you get the sense that he is gambling and he is winning but he needs to gamble again and win again in order to get yeah to the ultimate prize um, and I really identify with that of just like there's this incredible scene where he's won a lot of money and he is, I mean, gleefully stuffing it in a bag so it can go to a casino. Yeah. Even though he has <clears throat> debt collectors in the next room. Yeah. Like, who are prepared to kill him mm-hmm. in order to get this money. And he is, like, stuffing it in a bag and, you know, chucking it out a window to his girlfriend so that she can go put a bet on. And he is laughing. I mean, he's joyful in that moment. Yeah. Because and I think that's the thing about rolling the dice and I'm sort of in scare quotes with that like rolling the dice and playing the the cards or whatever um is it's a very it's a thrilling moment do you know what I mean it's the true definition of like a thriller film because yeah. it's like a roller coaster and you're really like I felt like I was really there with him yeah like and I feel like yeah there's been tons of times where I've been like ah like not in gambling I'm not really interested in gambling I could never get into it no too, too pessimistic <laughs> <laughs> I always think I'm going to lose um, but you but I think like people make gambles and they you know take risks in other aspects of their life that might not be like betting on a a sports game but you will like make a gamble on something else like in politics especially um, do you know I mean? we chuck around lots of hostages to fortune mm-hmm. um, or we invest our time and energy in certain things and just because like okay let's roll the dice let's do it and I... if it goes well then you like stake it all on the next opportunity and yeah. just as when I was watching it like I know loads of people were like it was too stressful like I couldn't go through the whole film it was just too much but there was certainly part of it for me where I was like yes like i'm really like getting getting a real buzz out of that yeah yeah. and and the whole way it's shot so there are some scenes where the tension is heightened and heightened and heightened and heightened and then nothing comes out of it like the the style in which it's shot is really psychologically clever and like a horror film Mm. you know or like a thriller or something like that um but I also thought it was like a brilliant depiction of the sort of person who, even if they're not someone who has a specific addiction, like gambling in his case, um, there's a sort of personality who's generally quite self-destructive and sort of addictive, addiction adjacent, who's constantly living their life on the edge. Even if it's in a really small, unglamorous way. We all know people who are always running at the last minute, always pulling things out the fire, 
Do you know what I mean? They're yeah. always just seat of the pants. Seat of the pants, yeah. right? I think I think there's a whole subsection of about ten or fifteen percent of the population who are unknowingly deeply attached to to living their lives in that yeah. sort of way. I describe it as um, the spinning plates. Yeah. Like when you've got like lots of plates spinning. Um, and it's quite stressful, but it's also exhilarating when you can keep it all going. Like, mm. that's a real, like, that's actually quite a gambler's mindset. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, not at the not at the Oscars for Uncut Gems. Yeah, but well worth a watch. Well worth a watch. Um, the Irishman missed out as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we've talked about The Irishman on the pod, but I loved it as well. Uh... Yeah, I thought I thought it was quite good, but I thought I thought the the latter third of it was really good. I do actually the, the more time that goes by, I have to say I do increasingly think it is a problem that they're a bit too old. I'm really sorry to say that because I think it's a really lame thing to say, but I just I do feel that way. Maybe it's because I happen to know how old they were how famous they were and stuff before I watched it. But yeah, I don't know what it is exactly about it that didn't work. But I, I'm still surprised I didn't win anything because it still is a very, very enjoyable film. I, I thought it was a great film. I I don't mind. Do you mean like the, the fact that they're old trying to be young? Because <sighs> they're not even really... Well, they are at points trying to be quite young. It, it gets better the, the more they are playing older people. I think there is an actual... There's a simple problem in some of the scenes, which is, it's a very dialogue-heavy film, and the dialogue tends to work, and then you'll see one of them get up and move around, and it stops working. See, for example, there's a great scene in that film where De Niro's little girl witnesses him brutalising a shop owner who was disrespectful to her, and he's, like, stamping on the... But the way he's standing, he's doing that old man thing, like, he's standing like Mr Burns from The Simpsons, where his hands are sort of draped in front of him, the way old men sometimes stand. Uh, and you can tell he's really old to watch it. And it looks very strange. See, I, I didn't notice that. I got sort of really sucked in to the plot. But I think it's... The fact that it's so long it's on Netflix is kind of one of these films that it's people like will... It's a watershed, yeah. But people will also put it on in the background and do other stuff. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, people aren't sitting down to watch that like in a home cinema. Um, so I think that it's a different style of film. Uh, I thought that the the way that they aged in the film, the last sort of half hour was really moving. Yeah, um, and my like the fragility yeah. of old age. Mm-hmm. Um, to think that you know there's someone there who you know it's based on. I heard you paint houses, you know, and. This guy is basically saying that he murdered one of the most famous trade unionists in American history. Um, is now a lonely old man. No family, no friends. Yeah, yeah, but that doesn't mean that he has no history, or does it? Because, like, there's no, there's no consequences. Yeah. For Frank, um, but I thought that, that was really moving. I also loved like the way that Jimmy Hoffa was portrayed. Yeah, 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 that was so enjoyable. <laughs> uh, I've been like cutting so about quoting him, being like, "It's my union." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I lo- I did enjoy all that. So the next film is the one that everyone's talking about, uh, Parasite. But by the way, I can't hear the word Parasite anymore without thinking about Parasite, the uh, the Lemmy sketch, and that little point with the pinky. Uh, what is it he says in that sketch? Is it, eh, can someone, can someone understand for me, please? Yeah, yeah. Is that what he like says? That, yeah. yeah, and then it's let me contact him dead. Just one more day. Do you remember that one? <gasps> Just one more day. He was going to make gonna it. Make it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, Parasite. Well, I loved it. I mean, I'm just, I realise I'm sitting here being like, oh, I really like that film. I really like that film. <laughs> like, as if I have no critical faculties. I thought it was great. I'm not convinced it was an Oscar winner. Really? I. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. It's not an Oscar winner like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is. I've still not seen it. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is epic. It's like beautiful. Brad Pitt obviously won the best supporting actor for that. Um, it's about Hollywood. 
it's a real masterpiece so like probably Tarantino's best film I would say um, but overlooked because mm-hmm. they weren't going to give that to Tarantino yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean um, so I'm not I, I thought Parasite was great but I'm not sure it's like an Oscar winning film mm-hmm. uh, but yeah because it, it made history of course being the first foreign language film the first subtitled film yeah. to win best picture what did you like about tons of stuff so for anyone who hasn't seen it or ain't gonna see it because spoilers um it's about a lower class working class family the kims in south korea who infiltrate the lives of a upper class very rich south korean family and the parks the the grift of the Kim family to get work in as basically the Park family domestic staff. Yeah. yeah. So the Park family are the rich family um, and the film is about, I think, their reliance on not only the labour of the quote-unquote underclass, but also their love, their respect, their dignity, like mm-hmm. that is what feeds the Park family. Yeah, they yeah. need those things. Um, it's a really interesting film because it's the first film I can think of that's about class, but without like a big sort of moral stick. So take something like the Joker. Mm. Um, it was very moralistic about class. The rich mm. people in Joker are despicable. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas for the most part in Parasite, the rich family aren't massively dislikable mm-hmm. like they, they seem kind of they seem a bit dumb yeah like the, the woman's a bit daft and um, the dad is he's just kind of like smooth but he's not they're not like grotesque no they're just sort of um they're just sort of a bit complacent mm. in, in the way that kind of upper middle class people are um and but one of the things that i found really interesting about the film was lots of like people on the right, in particular in politics who work in the media, were, were just sort of disgusted by it. And it's probably because, unlike something like Joker, which, as you say, is much more melodramatic, I think they probably looked at the Park family and thought, that's my family. Do you know what I mean? It probably <laughs> arrived home for them a bit more brutally. Of course, there's an ambiguity in the title. Who is the parasite mm. in that situation? Uh, and, of course, in a sense... It's the family who are infiltrating and sort of taking over the host to a certain extent. Um, but it's also a really, like, it's a really good lesson on basic political economy because who is actually performing the, para- the parasitic uh, relationship? Uh, and you actually, like I say, I mean, some of the people who were very critical of it argued about this. They said, well, the Park family aren't parasites. They are, they are engaging in an honest exchange. They are handing out money uh, over the odds at times, as it were, to this family to perform work. And the family are performing it dishonestly. right? So the, the parasites very clearly uh, the working class family, which has infiltrated the, the upper middle class family home. The really interesting thing is the way in which the filmmakers elevate the house so the house is like an architectural marvel. Some mm. famous architect created it. And it's a very kind of modern, beautiful, luxurious uh, surrounding. Um, and it's a really clever device because what that's telling you is this is not an equal relationship. It's not just money being exchanged for labour. Because, because as in the, the wage-capital relationship, yes, workers get paid money. Yes, capitalists receive uh, the labour. But what's the third component there? The third component is the product of the labour, which is monopolised by capital. Mm. And in this sort of analogy, the house, this marvellous house that stands for all that's happy and luxurious Mm. in an increasingly wealthy South Korean society, is never contested. Mm. It's the thing that is really the object of contestation between the two families, but the parts control it. And they always will. And without telling you what the ending is, the ending suggests that, you know, 
that the the house is still beyond the contestation of the of of, of the working class. I thought that was a really clever device, mm. and there's some really weird shit in it where, mm. kind of alluding to things like religion, class deference, some of the poor people in the film start sort of worshiping the house, yeah, and worshiping the owners. I mean, I I also think that the house is a really significant part of the film, but in the sense of. I mean, I hate to go all Sigmund Boyd again, yeah. but I shall. Um, so I see the, the the Kim family as like almost a representation of the ego and like Freudian terms, like the the basic sense of being part of a society, like just operating the house, which is ups up from where they live like it's actually all uphill yeah, and you yeah, can yeah. see that very clearly in order to get there they have to go from a place where they're very low down right up to the top of this hill to get into the house the house in essence is like a representation of the super ego where like freud talks about like that's where morals and conscience comes from yeah so like by operating in this house that is essentially the super ego but the house also has a basement, yeah, which is re- representative. Where something ugly is going on. Yeah, it's the end, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is like this is a, kind of a very sort of like Zizek type analysis. He makes the same point about the house in Psycho. So in the film Psycho, you have Norman Bates acting out his regular life. Um, so for example, like in Parasite, it's the Kim family going to work because they need money to survive. Very baseline sense of things. Um, upstairs in Psycho uh, is when Norman Bates is like performing the critical voice of his mother. Mm-hmm. Like, Norman, don't do that, blah, 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 blah. I don't want to go in the fruit cellar type thing. <laughs> and then down in the basement is where it is revealed that no. um, his mother is actually dead. And down in the basement in the house in Parasite, is where the the real like darkness of what a like undeveloped class consciousness actually brings like that's yeah. the that's the horror of it is really down below there's a really weird scene in that regard where two different the two different sets of working class characters start arguing over who gets to call whose sister yeah. That's a yeah, really interesting yeah. moment. I noticed that as well. So there's the scene where the former housekeeper tries to speak to the, the new housekeeper and call her sister. She says, I'm not your sister. But then when they're up in the operation of the park house, mm. there there's the use of sister from the the park mother. Yeah. yeah. Um, so she calls the housekeeper sis. A lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's um there's there's a lot of like I felt like it was quite I mean a lot of people said it was quite uh, heavy handed. I didn't. I thought it was some of it was very subtle. I thought it was very subtle. I also don't really think it's a I don't think it's, it's a not it's not a, it's not a big moral tale. Like yeah. I've seen some like critiques from the left where they talk about it being like, you know, really obvious and surface level, but I don't think it is. Like I think if you were going in as someone who has left wing views you're going to watch it and be like, oh, that's really obvious. But this isn't for, like, the left. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, Bing Jun-ho has been like, very clear about that, I think. So it's not really a moral tale. It's not, like, allegorical. But it's actually something that goes beyond focusing on the material, uh, like, the material realities or the material wealth between rich and poor. Yeah, so... Yeah. Like, I think that I think this is an important part, that it's not just about, like, they have a nice house and they have a shit house. Yeah. Because right. something happens to the humanity of the the people who work to support the park's lifestyle. Mm. It's not just that they're going to... So obviously the Kim family get better off as the film goes on before it reaches its climax. Mm-hmm. But they get better off. And there's a scene where because they have now landed on their feet and they're working for this rich family in an economy that's very precarious and unstable... There's a scene where Mr. Kim in their kind of basement, semi-basement, I think is the phrase, semi-basement flat, they're having a meal and he says, can we start with um, a prayer of thanks or a prayer of gratitude for Mr. Park 
for being able to provide this meal. And it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, mm. but there's still a sense of, we are so grateful. Yeah. Later on in the film, Mr. Kim is confronted with the man who lives in the basement, mm. who is like self-harming mm. to show respect for Mr. Park. And he's horrified. He says something like, you do this every day. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's just like, how could you bring yourself to do it? But it's some there's something that goes far beyond just the material or political economy sort of story of yeah, it, definitely. and gets really into, I guess, what I would say is psychopolitics. Like, what is happening to like consciousness under neoliberalism? Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I think I think that it's like I actually thought that as a as a representation of class politics it was much smarter than a lot of the stuff you get like it's a lot smarter than i like ken loach films but it's in a sense it's 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 ken loach films are for the left exactly right um like it is is smarter than that because it reminds you that class relations are just that you know there's there's a kind of um there's a sense in which class conflicts predates the social classes themselves because social classes only exist when they are in conflict. So, like, the Park family and the Kim, Kim fa- family are defined by the unspoken conflicts between them. Um, and I thought that came through very well. And once you have that kind of structure, you don't need the kind of moralism that someone like Ken Loach yeah. might deploy, right? I mean, it, it doesn't matter that the Kim family are in their own small ways, immoral, that they're pulling these scams, that they're sometimes pushing other working class people out of the way in pursuit of the money. Because you're not being asked to agree with the moral personhood of the Kim family. You're being asked to sympathise with the structures of power that's the, that have brought them and the yeah. Park family together in a destructive alliance. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think it is very subtle. So there is, throughout the film, there are escalating references to the loss of humanity of the Kim family. Mm-hmm. Um, very early on, um, as soon as the, the son has the main connection with the Park family, uh, who gets the job through a friend, which is basically how people get jobs the world over. It's yeah. not like your education or your background or anything it's actually who you know it's your social circles yeah, yeah so but he has this friend who seems to like be his link into that other world he gets that job and then the day he gets that job the park family the mother renames him <laughs> she yeah. calls him kevin yeah she takes it like so that's not his name anymore he's now an english teacher so they call him kevin mm-hmm. And there is this real, like, slow chipping away at the humanity up until the sort of climactic scene in the film, which I found exhilarating. Because mm. there's real sad things that the kind of the thread that starts to come through is that the Kim family, you get a sense that there is a danger of them being, their grift being discovered mm. because of the way that they smell. Yeah. And they didn't know mm-hmm. that they had a smell. Yeah. So, uh, which to me, I think is like, there's the reality of that, which is very, like, I find really, really sad. Yeah. Like, the, that kind of snootishness, the hold your nose, like, that type of thing. But I think that there's also, like, it's a way of describing class consciousness. Like, they, they don't know that like where they are in that pecking order do you know what I mean because they think that the parks will you know this is under neoliberalism everyone has to be self-reliant and the parks have just been better at being self-reliant than the Kims yeah like that's the consciousness at the beginning of the film yeah um, and the smell drives forward the plot like the kind of the, the idea that the Kims smell different drives forward the plot um, to the climax which is a uh, Violent and exhilarating. Yeah, it is exhilarating because basically... Because Mr. Kim reclaims his dignity. Yeah, but but also it's just the, the thing that's always exhilarating is that the, the kind of bullshit ideology that has grown up around 
the exploitative relationships in this whole situation are suddenly torn away. And that is exhilarating um, to see that. It's, the, it's a similar kind of exhilaration you get when, you know, it's like something like The Yellow Vest. And I mean, it's obviously not. It's a fucking film, right? But it's like The Yellow Vest in France. I mean, the thing that's exhilarating about watching The Yellow Vest and the strike movement or whatever in France is, in a moment, the, the deference can be gone. You know, I mean, the deference to authority, the deference to the state, to um, existing kind of class hierarchies and stuff like that, can disappear in a in a in a shocking moment of of rage or whatever, because those those resentments and pressures do build up and build mm-hmm. up and build up over time. Um, so yeah, I thought it was. And there's that bit fun. like after the kind of like the climax scene, where it cuts back to. Their home, where another daughter is dead, the father of the house is missing. This is the Kim family, um, and their Kevin, <laughs> scare quotes, is watching the news footage, and the news reporters are saying, and um, people have no idea why this happened. This isolated moment of rage, people don't know why it occurred. Mm-hmm. It seemed to come out of nowhere, and it's like we actually live against. Th- this is this is another like sort of Zizek theme. But this idea that we somehow live in peace times because we're not at war in the way that we were at war <laughs> in the Second World War. <laughs> like mm. but actually we live again we live in this incredibly violent time mm-hmm. where those antagonisms are becoming sharper and sharper and sharper and those like random acts of violence will those sparks will happen. I mean it's not that long ago that we had like we watched the Arab Spring, yeah, and like yeah. how that like you know caught like wildfire. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know what I mean? Like those kind of like those moments that that spark something much bigger are there. We're living against this backdrop of violence, even though this is supposed to be you know the end of history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, we're yeah. living in a democracy now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an incredible film. There's so many like different parts to it so many like great quotes but the ending i think is very sad um where it ends with kevin saying and i'm just going to get really rich so that i can get my family back Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah um but i was relieved that you aren't presented with that as though it's i'm glad there wasn't a happy ending eminently realizable yeah yeah I'm glad there's not a happy ending. It kind of ends with a dig to the idea of social mobility. Yeah, yeah, but... In the traditional sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah there is. So, like, when he says, I'm going to get an education and I'm going to, like, be really rich and I'm going to buy this house so I can have my father back and all you'll need to do is walk up the stairs. And it's really sad on, like, so many levels because, I mean, this is... There's a like a big degree of love and wanting the family to be back together after it's been torn apart by this like incredibly violent incident, but also the idea that that, that would ever be possible because that's not how it works. Because mm-hmm. he's not going to be able to do that, and we all know that. And you leave the cinema knowing that it's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all the stuff about like plans as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and 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 the this, best type of plan is no plan. Yeah, yeah. and and this uh, and of course it ends with him making a plan that's totally infe- uh, you know unfeasible. Um, but I, there's also another thing in there. Of, no matter how skillful that family is, no matter how brilliant their various schemes are, it's all destroyed in a moment of instability in a flood that um, that appears. And because because they live in the in the gutters of society and not on the hill in the big house. Uh, you know, the rain does not fall equally on the just and unjust. Uh, it falls into the into the gutters where they live and sweeps away all their sort of careful planning and stuff like yeah. that, which I, I thought was another really kind of in, interesting kind of observation. Yeah, there was also, like, that's based in reality as well. So mm. there was, like, a huge flood in the 1980s in Mangon in South Korea in the 1980s and it was an area that had been systematically like underinvested in really uh, deprived community mostly elderly people who lived there um, and it was all washed away Um, and it the residents 
got organized and formed a huge lobby to get compensation and mm-hmm. it was one of like the biggest social movements in South Korea mm-hmm. which I didn't appreciate when I was watching it was only afterwards when I was reading about the film that those types of floods did have some social consequences mm-hmm. but in Parasite it it's where the film turns mm-hmm. it's where it turns from being quite funny and edgy and a sort of like, oh God, what's going to happen in a thrillery, whodunit type way to a real tragedy, like the like a loss of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, because when that rain falls, it destroys their house. Their home is sinking and it's covered in raw sewage. Mm. Um, but for the Park family, they wake up the next morning and they think that everything looks beautiful because the rain has been so heavy. And made everything lush and green again. Yeah. And it's like at that point the film like manages to do this incredible turn from being a caper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it is, yeah. <laughs> like with like really like laugh out loud funny parts to oh god, that's actually really sad. Like mm-hmm. this is really sad. There's a scene in the car after that where it brings back the, the stuff about the smell. Yeah. Where the mother is in the back seat with her feet on the seat. Yeah. And, like, she starts to sniff the air and Mr. Kim knows it's him and it's just it's really sad. Like, so I had, like, a scenes, lump yeah. in my throat. Speaking of tragic cables... <laughs> <laughs> the, so uh, I had some juice in my mouth there. <laughs> um, I assume this is your segue into the Labour leadership. Yes. Uh, another uh, bloody climax. Uh, yeah, but it's tragic. fucking longer than the Irishman. <laughs> Do you know that's not going to be over until the 4th of April? Oh my god. The 4th man. of April. It's like, a, and it's like a funeral march. It's just going on and on and on. Um, basically, what we've found out is that there are no good candidates for the leadership at all. Um so all, all it was then at that point four uh, uh, candidates at Hustings organised jointly, I think, by the Jewish Labour Movement and uh, Labour Friends of Israel, um, and hideously compared by uh, uh, what's his name Robert Peston. Robert Peston. Um, all four candidates said that they were either Zionists or sympathetic to Zionism. Actually, it was Keir Starmer. Yeah, Keir like... Starmer at least came out with a bit of integrity, having not said, I am a Zionist, or to quote Rebecca Longbelly, I suppose I'm a Zionist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some deep thought there. Genuinely frightening. Yeah. Like, there was also Rebecca Longbelly on the Marshall where. I mean, she did stand up for herself a bit, but she, you know, agrees with this idea that you can't, that it's anti-Semitic to say that the circumstances surrounding Israel's founding were racist. Yeah. So we're now living in a world where you cannot say that the Nakba is racist. Yeah, I know. I I this is honestly I think like one of the greatest tragedies of our time. Yeah, I I think the Palestinian people have been thrown under a bus. Yeah, I know. Again, it's it's astonishing stuff. I'm not pretending like the Labour Party as an institution has been on the side of the Palestinian people, Mm. but what is happening now is harrowing. Yeah. Um. It's truly shameful that this is going on just at a time, by the way, where the Palestinian people are being presented with the Trump plan, which is the the death sentence for for the Palestinian nation. Do you know what I mean? Uh, it's a plan that's openly being presented to them that would deny them statehood, further ethnically cleanse them from uh, the lands that they hold on to. Right in that moment, if you can't find it in your heart to say that you stand with the Palestinians and that you are not a supporter of the state ideology of the colonial settler state that is doing this to them, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't trust you to do anything. Like, if you would say that the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people, that saying that that's racist, 
is itself anti-Semitism, then you'd do anything. You'd say anything. You know, you'd bend on any policy. You don't have any principles. Um, and it's incredible that it's ultimately come to this, but not, you know, it's not like no one predicted it. Um, I mean, the the full sentence also uh, that Robert Peston read out, you know, he said, uh, would, it be, would it be anti-Semitic to describe any policy of Israel as racist? So you're not allowed to say that any policy of, it, of Israel is racist. A... All four of the candidates said, yes, that would be anti-Semitism. I mean, but that's an accusation that can be levied at a number of states. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's, a, it, it's truly balmy um, and shows you really that the Labour Party in general seems to be just sinking. I mean, it's taken its defeat as badly as it possibly could have. The front runner is someone who was an architect of the policy which sunk Labour in 2019. Uh, and the party's whole reaction to that defeat seems to be to slip deeper into a mire of kind of a bureaucratic culture of expulsions and animosity and stuff yeah. like that. I think that once Kia finally takes over in April, it's hard to see how it won't that won't result in mm. a huge wave of expulsions from the party. I think it's also important to note, I think that Keir Starmer has a lot of Keir Starmer and Lisa Nandy are probably doing best in Scotland, right? Because the Scottish Labour Party is still to the right of anything that Corbyn yeah. tried to tried to do. I mean, obviously you've got Richard Leonard and like a number of staff now within the Scottish Labour Party, but the base, like in the CLPs, mm. is still like to the right. Mm-hmm. Like economically and socially, mm-hmm. to the right of like the kind of Corbynism politics that Rebecca Long Bailey apparently stands for. I mean, I'm also like this. This is going to sound really bitchy, but at the end of the day, like she's not a class fighter. She was a lawyer until she went and became an MP. Mm-hmm. Right? She's not the like. She's not actually like she's not Laura Pidcock, right? That's she's actually yeah. different. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, but Rebecca Long Bailey is like they, I mean are they not all lawyers it's <laughs> <laughs> not a thing and but, by the way and I will say this and I'll say it clearly and I'm happy to just keep repeating myself on it but Palestine is not a fringe issue right mm. so see when we're talking about like the anti-semitism stuff or them all saying they're Zionists like Palestine's not some kind of little add-on fringe lefty campaign what is happening in Palestine is the West's imperial project in the Middle East where Zionism and neoliberalism collide to steal land, to exploit resources. And historically, the organised working class has had a movement of solidarity with those places and it's been systematically dismantled (laughs) by this narrative. And we should be very afraid because if we lose that argument, it's not not making an argument about charitable oh these poor people that this is happening to i'm saying this is about the uk us imperial project in the middle east Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is actually like about geopolitics this is much bigger than anything else and if we lose this argument it will have consequences See, see what i think a lot of people don't understand where the consequences come from right um a big part of the reason why the british left isn't more racist than it is, right? Is because arguments were won around things like Palestine, right? See if you didn't have solidarity in Western countries with the Palestinian people and similar movements, right? And solidarity with folk around the Middle East, right? That's when you generate the ideal breeding grounds for things like Islamic State, right? What a big part of what the left has to achieve in this period is to maintain a politics that will stop the formation of mutually reinforcing identitarian nationalisms, religious fundamentalisms, and so on. I think that's part of the general um, project. What the left got right with the anti-war movement and solidarity with Palestine, among other things, is it stopped those tendencies Mm. bedding in. Yeah. They created a really uh, powerful basis, 
a public image of a unified block of progressive sentiment with communities like the Muslim community and joint action between those different social elements, right? The alternative to that is what you have in France, where for all the benefits of like the, the French left ha- do get things right that obviously the British left. But they got one right. major thing wrong. A major thing wrong. And what that did was it broke down the relationship between, for example, the trade unions and some of the poorest slums in the cities, which are uh, which have large Muslim populations, um, for example. And it created chronic tensions that undermined the left and help things yep. like the Front National. Yep. People need to start looking at politics in uh, in the round. If the argument about so-called left-wing anti-Semitism and so, so on wins out, the big victors will be the far right. Yeah. There's absolutely no question about that. And listen, I mean, see, this is what is astonishing to me to think about this. It was in 2014 that Britain had its largest pro-Palestine marches. So this isn't something that's like, this is a, a response by the Brit, a very deliberate response by the British ruling elite to a proximate threat to break it down and to push it back. Yeah. And the fact that so many people on the left have gone along with that project is worrying. Yeah. Because it tells you, and, it, and it's told the British establishment, these people are vulnerable to certain sorts of attacks, quite yeah. simply. Yeah. I mean, I think of... A lot of the people that I know who got involved at, like in left wing politics, some of the founders of radical independence, who got involved in politics around Palestine solidarity action. Yeah, yeah. Like that was a huge part of people's political development because it taught people the history of imperialism. Mm-hmm. It taught people about imperialism and capitalism and the history of the Middle East and Britain's role. And <laughs> these lessons are invaluable. And if it's going to become something that is taboo or we can't talk about, then I'm not really prepared to be quiet about it, to be honest. So on that angry note. On that angry note. Oh, there was so much more we were going to talk about today as well. Caroline Clark. Ireland. Hmm. Speaking about imperialism, (laughs) Ireland. Um, But yeah, we can probably pick that up next time. So yeah, visit the website. It's at contour.co.uk. I'm afraid so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, visit that. You'll see articles. You can find out more about the pod as well. Um, yeah, see you soon. See you soon. Okay.